Good morning. It is a joy and privilege to worship with you this morning with uh, Dr. Z talking to us about obscure interests. I think that's the pot calling the kettle black there. Uh, but I wasn't gonna, I mean, no offense, brother, but you know, yeah. Uh, I have uh, been pleased to pray for you, and our church has prayed for you. We do from time to time hear reports about what God is doing in Redeemer Church in Dubai. And I am sure you hear many reports of what God is doing in New Jersey. There are saints in New Jersey, I'm pleased to report. <laughs> and uh, no, you, you, can, you can pray for the church uh, in New Jersey in particular. Uh, we are in a situation of uh, an increasingly secularized culture, and so it continues to create challenges for the saints there. But the, saint, the, the difficulties we face are the same difficulties you face. We face struggles in our families, struggles at work, struggles with our finances, uh, struggles with the government, right, with things going on. And uh, we look to the same Savior, and we cling to the same gospel. And so uh, I take great encouragement in that, and it is truly a joy for me to be with you this morning. So let me do this. Can we please pray together and ask God to bless our time as we look to his word? So please pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pause this morning and we continue in a posture of humility as we have been singing and praying together, and we ask that you would do your work in us. We thank you that you, although you are the infinite creator of this universe, that you have condescended and you have spoken to us through your son and through the gift of your word. And so we ask that you would help us now Help us as we seek to read and understand Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would convict us of our sin. And although that may make us uncomfortable and it may be hard, we pray that you would give us clarity in how we should respond to your word. And Lord, especially this morning, we pray that we would find hope in you, that we would see what you have done for us in your glorious victory. And Lord, we pray that we would grow as a result of our time looking at these verses. And so we ask these things, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. Well, when the nation of Israel had been rescued by God's grace back in the book of Exodus, God led them by his presence into the wilderness. I don't know how familiar you are with that story, but it is a story of God's faithfulness despite Israel's continued idolatry and unbelief. It's a somewhat sad story in many ways, as we see Israel fail to trust God, even as God had proven his goodness to them over and over again. Israel went into the wilderness, a place of tremendous difficulty, and they failed to trust God there. Brothers and sisters, you, I'm sure, already know this, but from time to time, you will be in the wilderness, meaning you will face difficult circumstances. You will face times of need, times of exhaustion, times where perhaps you don't know where the solution to the problem that you're facing will come from. That's time in the wilderness. We all will spend time in the wilderness, times that are hard, times when we're tired, times when we're suffering. And as if that weren't enough, we can add to those general circumstances of difficulty, being in the wilderness, we will face temptation. That is, we will face opportunities to choose sin, 
to choose to think in ways, to speak in ways, and to act in ways that go against the glory of God. Ways that are fueled by love of self or by love of another false God. And sadly, we must confess, even as we gather as professing believers in Jesus this morning, we have to confess that often we fail in the wilderness, just like Israel did. We face temptation and we give in. I need to ask you this morning, just as we get into Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, where are you facing temptation today? The truth is the battle's different for all of us because we all are in different circumstances. We have different weaknesses, and so we will be prone to failure in different ways. But you need to ask this morning, where are you struggling? Where are you weak? Where is there a weak spot in your spiritual armor where you are exposed Where are you being tempted? Now, as we look at these verses, we find great encouragement because Matthew 4, 1 to 11 is not primarily a text where we find a how-to manual to deal with temptation, although we will see some very practical steps we can take in our battle with temptation. But when we read Matthew 4, 1 to 11, we read of Jesus' victory as he faces temptation in the wilderness. And as we face temptation, we face temptation as followers of Christ, who, as we learn in Hebrews 4, was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Think about that for a moment. The temptation that you're facing this week, Jesus was tempted in that way. He knows what you're up against. He can identify with the struggle, the tug of war, what you want to do that you know you shouldn't do, And yet, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. We'll see here in Matthew 4 that where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. We're also going to see how this helps us tremendously in our own battle against sin. So if you have your Bibles there, you want to make your way there to Matthew 4, as we read earlier. And we want to pick it up in verse 1. Now, In the Gospel of Matthew, we come to chapter 4 right on the heels of the baptism of Jesus. And Jesus' baptism by John the Baptizer is basically the opening ceremony of his earthly ministry. It's game on. Let's go, right? Now it's time for the Messiah to do his work. And you'll remember that when Jesus was baptized, it was a Trinitarian moment where we have the, the Spirit descending as a dove onto Jesus, and we hear the voice of the Father say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And after opening ceremonies, you might think about the Olympic Games or the World Cup or something, after the opening ceremony, we're ready to, you know, let's go, let's have something really significant and important happen, the first game, right, the first events. The first event here after the opening ceremony is the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. Look at verses one and two there of Matthew chapter four. There we read, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. A few comments here on verse one. The first is that Jesus was led up. That is a, uh, a term indicating the change in elevation between the Jordan River Valley and the Judean wilderness where Jesus would have been tempted. So by elevation, he goes up in the general direction of the, the tribal territory of Judah. That is a, uh, the Judean wilderness is a bleak wilderness. Uh, there's not a lot there. There's no, no great restaurants out there. 
Um, there's not a lot to, you know, to be sustained by. Water is hard to come by. And, um, you know, when I'm preaching in New Jersey, our area of New Jersey is lush and green, lakes, rivers. It's quite a wonderful place. And I you know, have to try to explain, let me explain what the wilderness is like to you. Uh, but preaching here, I, I don't have to do that. So you know what the wilderness is like. You know what desolation looks like. Well, Jesus is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, but let's just note there that he's led up by the Spirit. Jesus going into the wilderness was not an accident. In fact, it was the perfect will of God the Father, Son, and Spirit. But just in case there's some confusion about the, the reason why or the circumstances that Jesus faces, just in case we might be confused and think this is not a part of the plan or this is not what, what God wants, this is not pleasing to God, just so we're all clear, the Spirit here reveals in verse 1 that he led Jesus to the wilderness. In verse 2, we find the connection Right? between Jesus' experience in the wilderness and Israel, but we just have to recognize that that occasion of being led into the wilderness is for a purpose, to be tempted by the devil. Brothers and sisters, God is sovereign over our time in the wilderness. When you face times of, again, hardship, difficulty, exhaustion, when you don't know how you're gonna get out of the jam that you're in, and you're struggling, and you're thirsty, right? You need to know that God is with you in the wilderness. In verse 2, again, we see the connection with Israel. We see it in the 40 days and 40 nights. He says, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The significance of the 40 days and 40 nights likely links to Israel's 40 years in wilderness wandering. So we're meant to see this analogy that as Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, here Jesus has been in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. Again, Israel failed in the wilderness. Jesus will be successful in the wilderness. But as we think about that, there's another common uh, denominator between those two experiences, the experience of Israel and the experience of Jesus. In both situations, the presence of God led them into the wilderness. God led the nation of Israel to the wilderness after being rescued, and here the Spirit leads the Son into the wilderness. So when you get into the wilderness and you're facing a difficult time, and then we heap temptation on top of that, don't for a minute think, God's not in this, God's not with me here, he's abandoned me, he's not working, he's not trustworthy. Just remember that God leads us in and through the wilderness. You see, we need, and this is just kind of an introductory uh, thought here, but we need a theology of the wilderness. God is not absent in the wilderness. When we're in the wilderness, we often respond sinfully. We might be bitter about our circumstances. That bitterness might lead to complaining about our circumstances. Do you remember when Israel, being in the wilderness, they complained about how they missed the food in Egypt? Wow, it was so great. We were slaves, but it was so great, right? They'd had a distorted memory. Sometimes when you're in the wilderness, you have a distorted memory where you, you misremember things of the past. You, you paint a different picture than what was real and true because you want to cater to your own desires. We could respond in the wilderness with bitterness, with complaining. We could respond by blaming God, basically accusing God of mismanaging the universe or at least mismanaging our lives. Of course, we remember in James chapter 1 that 
We can never accuse God of tempting us. God isn't out to get us. He's not trying to trick us. He's not trying to set you up for failure. But he certainly is working on us. And as God advances the cause of the gospel in our hearts, he is often pleased to send us into the wilderness. You need a robust theology of the wilderness to see you through times of difficulty, times of hardship. Now, these 40 days that Jesus spends not eating, fasting in pursuit of the Lord, right? As he does that, he is preparing for battle. And as we see here, this is basically uh, the, the devil's first opportunity to try to derail the mission. And really what's going on in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, is Satan's attack on the proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God. At the end of the baptism, the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And it's almost like Satan says, we'll see about that. And so here he comes at Jesus in a, in a full-on assault as he is in a situation of hardship and difficulty and indeed being hungry after fasting, right? So he's vulnerable, he's weak, maybe he hasn't slept, maybe he, he might you know, have an analogy to your own life experiences of being uh, physically exhausted or weak or tired. And so here's Jesus and he's vulnerable and he's weak and Satan says, here we go, I'm gonna, I'm gonna expose him to be a fraud, I am gonna prove that he is not the son of God he's going to attack and try to thwart the Messiah's mission. And so in verse 3, he does just that. We read, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now there's a lot going on here. Hopefully we've got that statement of the Father from the baptism still ringing in our ears. This is my beloved Son, and Satan says, are you? Are you really? If you are the Son of God, well, why don't you prove it, big shot? I know you're hungry. I know you haven't had Chipotle in three weeks. I've been away from my home for three weeks, and my favorite restaurant is Chipotle, which is a Mexican restaurant that makes the largest and best burritos in the world. I don't know if that's really true, but it's just, I love it. So, you know, there you go. He, 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 was, he was hungry. Oh, yeah, you're hungry. Well, why don't you just command these stones, no shortage of stones in the Judean wilderness, why don't you command these stones, turn them into bread, solve the problem? Why don't you do that? What's happening here is Satan is seeking to, again, expose a weakness in Jesus or take advantage of his weakness, rather, to, to thwart his messianic mission by causing him to be driven by his physical desires. Let your hunger drive what you're doing. You're hungry? You've got the power to turn these stones to bread. Just do it. Prove you're the son of God there. So often, by the way, when we face temptation, Satan knows where to poke, doesn't he? He knows where you're struggling, and he, and he just, it's like right there, he just gets you. But notice how Jesus responds in verse 4. But he answered. He doesn't just receive what Satan says. He responds. He counters Satan's assault, and he answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
It's well known, but it's worth saying again that Jesus here, in responding to Satan, he relies on the word of God, and he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter eight. In fact, he'll quote three times from Deuteronomy this morning, all from chapter eight and chapter six. These, this section of Deuteronomy is a moment when God is preparing the nation of Israel to finally go into the promised land, but he wants to remind them of crucial lessons they learned while they were in the wilderness. And so here in Deuteronomy 8, the focus is on God's provision of manna. And they complained in the wilderness. They didn't trust God, but God says, I gave you food to eat. I provided for you. But in Deuteronomy 8, the point is not just about physical food. The point there is actually more. It says, yes, I provided for you. And let that be a lesson to you, by the way, that what you need more than anything is not physical bread. What you need is my word. You need to depend on my word to make it through the wilderness If you're going to succeed once you get to the land, you need my word. You need to depend on my word to navigate the difficulties that you'll face and to honor me in the midst of a pagan context. And so Jesus responds to Satan here, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, relying on the word even as he is the word. Now, we see Jesus here victorious against Satan. We're going to see this in three episodes, right? There's three kind of rounds in in this uh, boxing match. And the first round here, we see Jesus prove he is the son of God, not by turning the stones into bread, but instead by relying on the word of God, and especially here doubling down on the truth that every word that comes from the mouth of God is what we need. Jesus succeeds where Israel failed, but he also succeeds where we fail, He succeeds, how? Well, here, by proving his identity as the Son of God, by relying solely on the word of God for his sustenance. He refused to take orders from Satan. He refused to let hunger drive his behavior. And in so doing, he was victorious. Round one goes to Jesus. If you are the Son of God, do this. Jesus says, not so fast, not so fast. Don't forget Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. You see, when we think about Jesus being proven as the Son of God here, and we see him victorious as the Son of God against Satan and his attempt to, to tempt him into sin, we see the means by which you and I are also victorious over sin. What do I mean by that? I mean that by faith in Jesus, we are victorious over sin. Our great hope this morning is not that we can figure it out, that we can somehow uh, navigate temptation, that we're gonna be able to get some tricks and tips and we're gonna be able to, to do it ourselves. And if we say no to temptation, then we can present ourselves to God and say, see, I said no to that temptation, God. I am worthy of your love. Please accept me into your presence. No, no, no. Our hope when we face the reality of sin and temptation, when we face satanic attack, our hope is solely in the fact that we have trusted in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is victorious. That's our hope. It it, it means that there's hope for every person who has been tempted and failed. Has anyone in this room been tempted and failed? (laughs) I have. And theologically, I know all of you have. You were a little slow on the hand there, right? I know you failed. It's not a mystery. But your hope is not in your ability to perform better. Your hope is in the fact that that Jesus, the Son of God, 
Well, that he didn't lose. He won. Jesus is the means of victory over temptation. By faith in him, we win. But Jesus is also a model for us. And so we also can see, as we see Jesus interacting with Satan here, we also can learn from his example. In this particular case, we learn uh, about how to handle temptation, especially when we're physically weak. I'll say it this way for you. Jesus models here prioritizing spiritual health over physical desires. Jesus models prioritizing spiritual health over our physical desires. In the culture of the United States, one of the, the proverbs that our, our society is built on is if it feels good, do it. It's not unique to our nation. If it feels good, do it. And when you're tempted by a physical desire, Jesus models how you should respond to that temptation. Let the word of God sustain you. Let the word of God sustain you. Physical desires. Hunger is the example here, but it's not the only way we're tempted physically, right? So Jesus' body was telling him, you need bread. And Satan says, if you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. Your body may tell you, you need this. You, and it could be hunger for food. It could be a sexual desire, right? And you have this strong bodily urge, I must be satisfied in this, but the caution here is, hold on a second. There's something more important than what's for dinner. There's something more important than that physical desire being immediately satisfied. What's more important is your dependence on the very word of God. And your body will tell you you need that. Brothers and sisters, we have permission to tell our bodies no. No, I, I don't have to have that right now. This, this can be so difficult, but Jesus is the means and model for defeating temptation, specifically here as he prioritizes spiritual health over physical desires. When you're tempted by a physical desire, go to the word of God. Side note here, it helps if you are familiar with the word of God in this battle. This is why reading the word, memorizing the word, talking about the word with other believers is so central to our ability to, to function as believers under attack. When we're tempted, we need the word of God to help us, to guide us. And when we fail, and we will from time to time, when we fail, don't beat yourself up over your failure. Don't try to crucify yourself to atone for your sins. But when we fail, let us look to Jesus who did not. And let's be reminded that our status in the sight of God and our status as righteous, forgiven sinners is not based on our performance, but it's based on his victory. Round one goes to Jesus. There's more ways than we could be tempted, though, than just physical desire. Check out round two, which starts in verse five. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. If we just pause here, Jesus is taken 
uh, probably in a visionary way here to the pinnacle of the temple, the high spot there over the Kidron Valley, and he can kind of, it's a really far drop, and Satan says, okay, you think you're, you're, the, you're the son of God? Well, then throw yourself down, and then Satan does what he will do to you and to me. He twists scripture. He quotes from Psalm 91, verse 11, a psalm that talks about God rescuing and providing for his own in extreme times of need through angelic uh, ministry. And so he takes Psalm 91, 11, and he twists it, and he says, oh yeah, that says that uh, angels will make sure you don't touch your foot on the stone. So throw yourself off the top there and let the angels catch you and then prove that you're the son of God, right? Do this. What's the temptation here? Well, the temptation here is actually to put the Father to the test. But watch how Jesus responds. In verse 7, Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus quotes here from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Again, same context. Preparing Israel after their time in the wilderness to go into the land to say no to temptation. This particular temptation, the issue referred to in Deuteronomy 6, was when Israel wanted, needed water in the wilderness. And remember, they complained, and so they, they had uh, you know, this moment where Moses provides water by striking the rock, and yet in that, their bitterness was exposed, their, their complaint, their sour hearts towards the Lord And so here, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6, which just reminds the people, you don't want to live like that, with bitterness against God uh, when you face times of need and difficulty. You don't put the Lord your God to the test. You don't demand of God, give me water. You don't demand of God, I need this, I need that. Jesus here could have have commanded the angelic army to rescue him there uh, at the Temple Mount, but instead, Jesus says, I am not going to dictate terms. I fear that maybe we tolerate more of this than we think. Dictating terms to God. Jesus is victorious. He refuses, this is so interesting, he refuses to put his will, meaning his his isolated agenda as the son of God, right, to put that at the center of the universe in exclusion to everyone else. He says, no, in, in perfect unity with the Father and the Spirit, Jesus says, I'm not going to go rogue here. I'm not going to go rogue. I'm not going to treat the angelic army as just his own personal you know, uh, cause to advance his agenda. No, he says, I'm going to stay submissive to the Spirit. I'm going to say, stay in unity with the Father and the Spirit. He's victorious in his submission to the Father and his dependence on the Spirit. He proves he's the son of God by not putting God to the test, but rather by walking in absolute unity and dependence on the Father and the Spirit. Jesus here models for us what? Well, he models just that. He models spirit-dependent service of God. We will be tempted to dictate to God Meaning, we'll be tempted to say, God, I, I, I must have this, right? Where my needs drive God's agenda. You know, this is uh, so common in many ways. It's one way of thinking about it, it's basically treating God as our genie in a bottle, right? Where, oh, we're going to rub the bottle here and God's going to poof come out and say, okay, I'll grant you three wishes. We might say, well, okay, I'll take it, right? 
because I want what I want. And sometimes they're good things that we desire. I want, uh, I want prosperity for my family. I want to do well in my, my education or in my workplace. I want to be healthy. I don't want to be in pain. But God's agenda is so much bigger than just us, right? And so often, Satan just, just attacks us and he says, you know what? You're the most important. You're the most important. You're the most important. But Deuteronomy 6 reminds us, hold on a second. We shouldn't put God to the test and say, okay, God, you're going to jump over these, uh, these hurdles here and prove to me that you're the real deal and, and meet my needs. Again, we may be thirsty, but what God calls us to is spirit-driven dependence on him. And Jesus proves he's the son of God by being victorious here in round two, but he also models for us what it looks like to depend on God even in times of need. We might, we might struggle with it this way. We might think, okay, God, if I'm gonna worship you, if I'm gonna be a part of, of your uh, program and be a part of your church, then there are some things you're gonna give me. Um, in exchange for that, you're gonna make me healthy, you're gonna make me wealthy, and you're gonna give me discernment, and you're gonna l- allow me to prosper. That's actually preached in Christian churches. You know it well, it's called the prosperity gospel. But in that gospel, what's happened? We have become the center of the universe. And it is, in that kind of thinking, it is ludicrous to say, God has ordained to send me into the desert so that I can suffer, so that I can grow spiritually. God has ordained that I would have difficult situations in my life so that I can learn to trust him better, and that's for my ultimate good, and so therefore it's better for me that I would suffer and be sick than I would be healthy and rich. I mean, here, Jesus models spirit dependence, right? He's not going to go rogue. He's not going to do his own thing. And because he was victorious, he models for us how to respond when we're tempted to put ourselves at the center of the universe. Brothers and sisters, can I encourage you this morning? Don't test God. Trust God. Don't come to God with your list of demands of things that he must do to prove his goodness. We come to God, we come to God on our knees in humility, confessing his sovereignty over the universe. And brothers and sisters, fear not, he is good. He is good and he is gracious. But woe to those who come to God dictating terms saying, you're going to do this for me and you're going to do that. Now, of course, Jesus wins round two here, and he models for us how we can be victorious when we face that temptation to put ourselves at the center. Well, Satan's not done. Round three, we find what I think is maybe the most difficult temptation for some of us. Watch verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. If we just pause there, this is surely a visionary journey because there's no spot on earth. You can see all the kingdoms. So the idea here is Satan takes Jesus and he just shows him all the kingdoms of the earth, right? And all their glory. By glory, we need to understand that to include riches, power, influence, status, right? All the things, right? All that stuff that so many are chasing And so here, Satan shows Jesus all of that in verse 9, and he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. All of it. 
Not some of the authority, all of it. Not some of the power, all of it. Not some of the riches, all of it. I'll give it all to you for just one easy payment. (laughs) Just bow down and worship me. Verse 10, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. If we pause there at verse 10, watch it, watch what happens. First of all, Jesus decisively has won the victory by rejecting Satan's temptation. So third round knockout right here, okay, in this match. Well, what, what does Jesus say? He doesn't, he doesn't um, let's just put it this way. In his interaction with Satan here, he takes the tone of command, doesn't he? Be gone, Satan. Satan says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, turn the, bread, or turn the stones into bread. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down and let the angels catch you. Uh, and here, you know, if you want all this stuff, then worship me. Jesus says, enough. And when Jesus says to Satan, be gone, Satan leaves. Because there's only one that ultimately has the true authority here, right? He says, we're done. But just to to round out the set, he once again quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And here he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In this place, we're at the beginning of Deuteronomy 6, where, again, God's preparing his people to go into the land, and they're going to be tempted to worship all these false gods. And just so we're really clear, in Canaanite theology, you worship gods to get what they could give you. So you want your business to be successful? You worship this god. You want to have more children? You worship this goddess. Your nation's going to war? You worship this god, right? So it was kind of like that, that pick and choose your god or goddess so you can get what you want. That's the, the way Canaanite idolatry practically worked out in the lives of those living in the land. And so God just prepares his people after coming through the wilderness, and he says, be careful Because when you get in the land, there's going to be so many other gods, but only worship me. I'm the only one who's the real deal. I'm the only one who can satisfy. And in this, Jesus, as he quotes Deuteronomy 6 again, he proves his identity as the Son of God because he refuses to participate in idolatry. Jesus was victorious. Israel failed. And brothers and sisters, you and I fail, don't we? We fail in our battle to say no to idolatry, where we, our eyes get filled with the desire for some particular thing and we're willing to worship it, to elevate it to a place of greater prominence in our hearts than the glory of God. We may fail, but Jesus didn't. He was victorious. He proved he was the son of God by saying no to Satan's offer here. He says, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Just being candid with you this morning, if uh, Satan came to me and made a deal and said, I will give you whatever, right? I fear that I would be persuaded by far less. Meaning, he wouldn't have to offer me everything for me to give in to idol worship. He might not have to offer me much. 
because I'm so concerned with how much money is in my bank account, or because I'm so concerned with what other people think of me, or because I'm so concerned with how my kids are doing and, and their success in life, or because I'm so concerned with having this person as my spouse, or living in this neighborhood, or this house, driving this car, or whatever it might be, that on a, on a weekday, if I was struggling, and Satan said, I'll give you that, just worship me, I would be tempted far more than I care to admit. But where I would fail, Jesus was victorious. Again, he's the means of our victory. It's by faith in him that we are secure, even though we fail as idolaters. Jesus is the means of defeating temptation, but he's also here again the model for defeating temptation. What does he model here? Well, here he models refusal to give in to idolatry. Refusal to give in to idolatry. Brothers and sisters, Can I just encourage you this morning that when it comes to practically being victorious in moments of temptation, this perhaps is the central, like, battle. We just have to say, am I going to trust God and worship him only, or am I going to allow other passions to displace him in my heart? It's so easy, and again, it, it can be things that are inherently wicked, but most often it's the good stuff that we let crowd our hearts and, and, and crowd our affections And again, we we put them in the place of primary importance. Well, of course, when we worship God, guess what? Our dealings with money, our dealings with work, our behavior with our family, our, our attitude towards our education, all those things actually fall right into place when we put God first. But when we take any of those and we put them at the top, that's when we're gonna get sideways and we're gonna see compromise and we're gonna see actually disaster. Jesus models refusal to worship false gods. And he proves here, he, he is this true son of God with his humility, with his service, with his love. If we had time to read on in Matthew, we'd continue to read how he proved his identity. I mean, this is like the first moment here in Jesus' earthly ministry, and what happens? Satan comes out swinging, and Jesus knocks him right down. Round one, round two, round three, Jesus wins. But this is just the first installment of Jesus' victory over Satan and his attempts to thwart the Messiah's mission. You'll remember that when Jesus encounters demonic forces all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, the demons are shaken in their boots. That's a theological term. Shaken in their boots. Why? Because they know he is the Son of God who has authority. And, and so here, Jesus, again, this is the first installment, but he continues to prove his victory, but he also proves his victory as he deals with the disciples who failed and who had to be taught patiently and who had to be reminded. And Jesus proves he's the son of God victoriously by being patient with them. And he, and he proved he was the son of God as he healed people who were sick Again, the Messiah would be the one to to heal the lame and the blind. And so Jesus is doing that work throughout his ministry, again, proving his victory. Satan says, if you're the son of God, do this. If you're the son of God, do that. And when we read Matthew, we find out, wow, Jesus is the son of God. Look at what he's doing. But you might remember that Jesus, as he goes to the cross, and he's being crucified there, out of love for sinners, you might remember that in Matthew 27, 40, the crowd mocked him. And do you remember what they said? They said, if you are the son of God, the same exact words. 
if you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. And in that moment, the victory of Matthew 4, 1 to 11 was just a foreshadowing of the greater victory that would happen on the cross. Jesus proved he was the Son of God by staying on that cross for you and me. The greatest hope that we have as we face temptation is not we can figure it out, we can beat it. Our hope in beating temptation is our faith in the victorious Son of God, Jesus Christ, who relied on the Word of God and who proved that we don't have to give in, we don't have to say yes. But ultimately, we're victorious because Jesus not only shows us what a a faith-driven life of dependence on the Spirit looks like, but because he died for our failures. Inevitably, when we talk about temptation, it can bring up feelings of discouragement and despair, and I just want to encourage you, if you're a, a follower of Jesus this morning and you're here and you failed this week, and you have morally compromised yourself, you have been involved in a sinful attitude, a sinful act, sinful words, I just want to encourage you that Jesus Christ proved he was the Son of God by staying on the cross for you. And by faith in his shed blood, you are forgiven of your sins. Right now. If you're here this morning and you've not trusted in Jesus as your Savior, meaning you haven't repented of your sins, you haven't trusted in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, I just want to encourage you to consider whether or not you should. Because outside of Christ, there's no hope for victory against Satan's attacks. Outside of Christ, there's no hope of forgiveness or cleansing. There's no hope of peace. Outside of Christ, you'll give in to idolatry. Outside of Christ, you'll make yourself the center of the universe. And certainly outside of Christ, you'll let your body be your God and your desires will dictate your behavior. But I just want to encourage you that Jesus went to the cross out of love for you. And I know that the believers here at Redeemer would love to talk to you more about what it means for you to repent of your sin, to put your faith in Jesus the Messiah, who proved he was the Son of God by defeating Satan, yes, being tempted in the wilderness, but ultimately defeated him by dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead. It's a message of hope, it's a message of forgiveness, it's a message of the grace of God for us. Jesus is the means and model for our victory over temptation. You know, back in the 1500s, the translators of the Geneva Bible, they compiled, the Geneva Bible is the first ever study Bible, and so they had these little notes that they put at the the bottom of the page for all the verses, and they had had some great stuff, okay? Uh, But in this particular case, in Matthew 4, this is the note from the Geneva Bible, which I just love, okay? Here it is. Why should you read Matthew 4, 1 to 11? To the end, that by overcoming these temptations, Jesus might get the victory for us. Why do we care that Jesus was victorious in the wilderness? Because his victory is our victory. And so we read this not primarily as a how-to, defeat temptation kind of a passage, but we read this as a glorious presentation of the victory of Jesus over Satan. Why? They had it in the note. For us. He was victorious for us. So that by faith in him, we can actually move forward in confidence. Now we need to ask the question, 
What about effort? Shouldn't I try not to give in to temptation? Listen, do not tell the, my church in New Jersey, I told you, you don't have to try to fight sin, okay? No way, that's not gonna work. But as we labor, right, to fight temptation, we labor already in victory. I'll say it another way. We don't fight temptation to earn God's favor or to earn forgiveness. Why should we fight temptation? Because we've already won in Christ. Because he's already been victorious. And because we already have been forgiven. We think with the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, should we continue to sin that grace may abound? May it never be. But brothers and sisters, as we strive, as we labor day by day to trust God and say no to temptation, we don't do so because we have to win the battle. We do so because Jesus already has. He is the means and the model for victory over temptation. Would you please pray with me and we'll ask him to help us follow him. Lord, we pause this morning in light of Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and we ask that you would help us. Lord, I pray specifically for those who find themselves in the wilderness today, who are in a period of perhaps physical vulnerability, financial vulnerability. Lord, they're facing difficult times at work or at school or with the family. And Lord, I, I pray that you would Help them to have a robust theology of the wilderness, to remember that you have led them into the wilderness, and Lord, you will lead them through the wilderness. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we consider your victory over Satan here in the wilderness. I, I pray that you would help us to see that you have been victorious for us, that we don't have to fear satanic attack, and that we certainly don't have to give in to temptation. But Lord Jesus, help us not to take the burden onto ourselves and think that we have to earn forgiveness and we have to perform to earn your love. But Lord, help us rather to see here the first installment of your victory over Satan and his attempts to derail your mission to rescue sinners. And Lord, may we look past Matthew 4 to the cross where you proved you are the victorious son of God by staying on the cross for us. Lord, we also help ask for practical help. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would convict us of our sin and that you would guide us and lead us as we face temptation. Help us to rely on your word. Help us to refuse to put ourselves in the center of the universe. And Lord, help us to refuse to worship false gods that can bring no satisfaction. Lord, lead us in faith-driven dependence on you. Help us with wisdom and discernment navigate the challenges that we're facing. And Lord, we confess that the battle's different for each of us, and so I pray that you would give each of us particular wisdom as to our battle where we're struggling. And Lord, I pray for those who may be here who have failed this week and who are discouraged. I pray that they would find hope in the gospel, that they would see your victory on display, and that that would motivate them to trust you all the more in the days that come. Lord, we cannot be successful outside of you. We praise you that you are the victorious son of God and that you said no to temptation. And we thank you for dying in our place and rising from the dead so that we can follow you. We thank you for being our great savior. It's in your name we pray, amen.